Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. So with all that being said, uh, I want to invite you to open up your Bible. Um, I'm going to pull up the right sermon because I just realized I have last week's message up here. That would have been fun. But it was a great message. You'd want to hear it again, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the first 19 verses uh, here in just a moment. Um, this is the final Sunday of our series, Yes, Get Lit. Um, I didn't pick the name. I blame Pastor Rob for this, for picking the name. Um, no, but it's a, it, we, we are ta- recapturing this language uh, to talk about what it means to get reignited in our faith this Christmas season. And, and so today, we're going to talk about um, something that happens every once in a while in our lives uh, that's, that's not necessarily something that stirs our faith, but it might actually try and snuff out our faith. We're going to talk about oppositional faith, and really what we're talking about is when opposition comes against your faith. And so we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 19 together right now. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from the east, eastern lands, arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come out of you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star had first appeared. And he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. And after this interview, the wise men went away, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. And it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave... They, were, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, 
flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, and he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men report on the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. And when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up. The angel said, take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. And on that downer, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we've been talking about faith for the last three Sundays. And so we ask today, God, that as as we talk about faith that is experiencing opposition, we just ask, Lord, that you would be at work in the hearts and in the minds of every person in this room. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a vision of what it looks like to walk faithfully the steps of Jesus. In your name. So Christmas is coming, right? Christmas is coming. Uh, How many of you like to do the Santa Claus thing? Any of you into Santa Claus? You like Santa? Yeah? Okay. What do you guys know about Santa Claus? Comes down a chimney. What else? Brings us gifts. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Good, good. You've got a whole dossier on him. This is excellent. Yes, that's good. He works with elves. Like, who's that guy? I don't know. He works with elves. Um, So you guys know a lot about Santa Claus, but how much do you know about the real Saint Nick? Scandinavian. He was Greek, actually. Greek, actually. He was a bishop. He was the Bishop of Myra, which is in modern-day Turkey, but that was part of the Greek world at the time. They were all uh, Greek descent. And, and you know what St. Nicholas would do? You know how this whole thing started about Santa Claus is, is there was one story in particular. Back then, uh, uh, if you had daughters, they were not going to be able to get married unless you had a, do- a dowry for them. And, and this very poor family knew that his daughters risked being sold into slavery if he could not come up with a dowry. And, and St. Nicholas, the real Nicholas, um, he, he was raised uh, as a Christian by his parents, uh, but they were extremely wealthy. And when uh, they died, they left him this massive, massive inheritance, a lot of wealth for that time. So there's a story that he threw in a bag of gold for each of the daughters in through their window, and it landed in a stocking or a sock or a boot by the fire. 
And so that's one of the stories. Or other stories about how he uh, gave gifts to poor children and, and helped those in need. So you guys are kind of maybe familiar with this a little bit, right? And this is where the story of Santa Claus comes. But how many of you also knew that the real St. Nicholas liked to punch heretics? <laughs> Some of you knew this. Some of you knew this. I, I love this meme. Can you guys see what that says? That's Saint, a painting of St. Nicholas from Eastern Orthodox Church. It says, I came here to give presents and punch heretics, and I'm all out of presents. I, I got a kick out of this when I, when I saw this. But I, it's funny because like, sometimes you see memes, and a lot of memes are just based off of complete nonsense. It's not true. But this is a real story. So he, he was a part of one of the early theological councils of bishops in, in, in the early church. And uh, it was the Council of Nicaea, and they were struggling the church uh, with some very complicated theological issues. And there was a heresy at the time called Arianism. And, and, and Arius, this guy, had this heresy. He, he said that Jesus was not God. And, and so uh, the bishops invited Arius there because was, Arius was a bishop along with all the other bishops that are in the council. And they're, and they're talking about this, and they respectfully listened to Arius as he presented his theological argument for why he thought this was true. It was very flawed. They understood this, but they heard him out and respected him. And Nicholas is there, the bishop of Myra, and he just can't take this garbage anymore from Arius. And he got up out of his chair, walked across the room, and slapped him across the face as hard as he could. And you know what happened? He was promptly uh, defrocked, removed of his, his uh, bishop vestiges by the other bishops. They said, that is not what we do, and we do not tolerate this. So he was removed of that, and he was put off out of the meeting, out of the council, and put in chains until the council was done. Great story, right? Merry Christmas. <laughs> Santa can't bring you gifts this year. He's locked in prison because he slapped a heretic. So we've talked about doubting faith, faith where, where, where you're, when you're facing doubt and you don't know what to do. We've talked about childlike faith, having wonder and, and, and chasing after God in this way, just like a child would have faith. We talked about enduring faith, where you have to go for the long haul of faithfulness and trusting that God is going to do something. But what happens if your faith is opposed how do you respond? Are you going to get up, walk across the room, and slap the heretic? My point is, I hope you don't do that. Are you going to respond like, like St. Nicholas and go after those who oppose you and punch those who oppose you? When you feel threatened, when you, when you feel like your faith is under siege, are you going to fight fire with fire? Or is there another way? Is there another way? Jesus said this. He said, if someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. I think St. Nicholas forgot to read that part. Jesus has a radically different way of dealing with opposition to our faith. He has a radically different way of dealing with enemies. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. If they're forcing you, the, the soldiers would force people to march. If you, they force you to go one mile, carry their bags for two. Be radically different to those who are opposing your faith. 
And so if we're going to be like this, if we're going to have a radically different approach to faith when we're being opposed, there, it's going to require us to understand a few realities. And, and this story of the Magi, of King Herod, of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, there, there's a few uh, of these realities that we can pull from this story that I want to talk to you about today. This is a crazy, crazy story. Herod is really opposing the very thing that God has been setting in motion for centuries and millennia. He's opposing, if you read the, the account of Matthew, it goes through the whole genealogy of Jesus. Like this has been something that's been in motion from generation to generation, and now's the time, and Herod is going to stand opposed to that and threaten that. And so if we're going to know how we should respond to oppositional uh, opposition to our faith, and we need to understand three realities. Uh, and these three realities I'm going to talk to you about this morning. The first one is that we need to understand opposition and power. We need to understand opposition and power. If we're going to understand what it means when someone opposes our faith, we need to understand what opposition really looks like, and we need to understand what power really looks like. And I'll explain why that matters in just a minute. First, what's opposition? You're going one way, someone's keeping you from going that way. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. You're following God, you're being faithful to God, and someone is going to keep you from doing that. They're going to stop you. They're going to stop anyone who's trying to help you. They're going to try and cut it all out. God had a plan to put his intended king on the throne, and Herod was paranoid. And he was scared to death that someone was going to take it away from him. And so he had to oppose it. He had to oppose it in order to keep his power. God's people, here's what we need to understand about opposition. God's people have historically always been opposed. God's people even have always been historically um, oppressed. The Bible, the story of God from beginning to end, identifies strongest with those who are oppressed, those who are on the outskirts looking in, those who do not have power, uh, those who are being opposed, who are trying to be faithful to, to God's ways. The Bible is always showing in the story how these people are the ones that are redeemed and saved by God at every turn. A lot of times we in America as Christians think that we are experiencing mass waves of persecution. I'm not saying we're not opposed, but I think sometimes we like to think we're being persecuted at a crazy level that really just doesn't exist. There are countries around the world that are experiencing real persecution. What we might be experiencing here is we're not quite as privileged as we once were, and maybe we're just like preferred. Why do, I, why do I say that? You know, Christians in America today still make up about 65% of the population. 65%. Now, they've fallen out of favor with a lot of media outlets and academia and different things like that. So it can feel like it's a lot more opposition than it actually is sometimes. Now, I'm not saying it's not opposed. I'm not saying there, that there's inaccuracies and bad narratives being put out there about Christians, but I think we need to get a proper understanding of what opposition really looks like, right? 
We, we need to put this in perspective for St. Nicholas's Day in 300 AD. Did you know in 300 AD, Christians made up only about 10% of the Roman Empire? 10%. And the church was flourishing in this time, growing, growing in, in leaps and bounds. Uh, opposition is, is, is historically something that God's people always experience, and it's not always a bad thing for the church. Any, any group that's experienced pressure like that has tended to flourish over the years. So I just want us to have opposition kind of uh, the big picture of that as we're, as we're talking about this. What does opposition really look like? What does it really Mean. Now, you might be experiencing opposition on, on a day-to-day basis, right? You might have someone at work that's hostile towards you because of your faith, or you might be experiencing opposition uh, because you want to do something uh, that God's calling you to do, and there's some kind of obstacle to that. That's all real. I'm not trying to negate any of that, but just put, we need to put it in perspective. Does this make sense to you guys, where, where we're going? Good. Okay, I don't want to belabor the point. Second thing we need to understand is power. What is Power. Um, I'm not going to get too technical in the definition, but, but essentially, if we look through the, the story of Scripture, power is also something that God's people have traditionally not had, especially if we talk about earthly power. We talk about uh, government power, military power, political, social power, financial power. It traditionally is something that Christians have not had uh, as much of as other groups of people, okay? And, and then whenever... In the Bible, God's people suddenly come into power. They tend to uh, be more oppressive and more brutal to the people that they are, have power over than those who had power over them. Famously, a lot of the prophets uh, criticized the kingdom of Israel for being worse than Egypt was to them when they were in slavery. You were enslaved, and you're supposed to remember that you were an enslaved and oppressed people. You're supposed to use your power differently, and you're worse than the Egyptians were. The prophets would criticize over and over and over. And the, the, the biblical story is constantly making us aware that power isn't bad, but power is just as much affected by sin as everything else in our lives and in our world. Power is very easily misused and mismanaged and misunderstood. The fact that the Christmas story takes place in Palestine, in Bethlehem, and not in Rome or Athens is significant. That's a big deal for understanding power. I've talked about this. If you were in our 30 Days to Understanding the Bible class, you you heard me say this once. Um, Has anyone ever been to Gary, Indiana? You have. Are you from Gary, Indiana? Okay. All right. So it's okay if I trash Gary, Indiana for a minute. I'm not going to really trash it. I'm just going to talk. I'm just going to talk about my observable experience when I when I went through. Here's the thing. Gary, Indiana is kind of the armpit of America. It, it, it was. That's. There are. That's true. So that's true. There's a lot of places like this. I'm really just joking a little. But here's why I say that. Here's why I say that. When I was young, and we actually moved to the Chicago area, I drove through Gary, Indiana. And I remember being about eight years old and driving through, and I just went, what is that smell? And it was the smell of sulfur, 
The, the, yeah, it's similar to Newark. Yeah, the, it happens. Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of places in New Jersey where there's sulfur like being burned. You, you know, you go by any of those places. So I'm coming from New England. I had not experienced that before. Uh, so I'm not coming from New Jersey. So I'm driving through Gary, Indiana going, what on earth is that smell? And, and my sister's going, oh, oh, what's it smell? And we're all freaking out, and we're seeing, my parents are explaining, we're seeing the burning sulfur things, and it, it just was, I don't know if it's any different now. I haven't been back there in years, so maybe it's a different place. Um, but my experience as like an eight-year-old was like, this is horrible. Like, this is a real place? I, I had no, no context for any, anything. Like, I had no idea. I didn't understand the factories. I didn't understand anything they're doing. But, uh, but a lot of times, I, I have since thought about uh, places like that, places that are like, we, talk, we can talk about places right here in New Jersey, right? It's the garden state, but some of it's not very gardeny. Uh, and we can talk about how all of these places we go, we go, man, like, what good could come out of there? Right? Or, or maybe there's some small town somewhere that you know of or a remote location. You're like, well, that's just like a, you know, there's a backwater place. Like no one does anything. You hear how people constantly use this narrative about places that are maybe uh, not as desirable to be. It's not like Manhattan. It's not like Chicago. It's not like L.A. It's not like the big places where things are happening and people are meeting and media is happening and, and people who are wealthy or influential are going there and connecting and, and all those things. Those kinds of places are like Rome and like Athens in the ancient world, okay? But the Christmas story, I think this is so important to understand, the Christmas story takes place in a place that people are go. What good could come out of there? Uh, that's just that's Judea, that's Palestine, that's Bethlehem's this tiny little village. There's nothing good that can happen there. Nothing good can come out of a place like that. Yet it's the place with no influence, no power, seemingly very insignificant. And God uses that place to be the place that the king of the world would be born. So there's hope for any place. Right? Amen? And I mean that seriously. God wants to do stuff in the places that we go, oh, what good could come out of there? See, God subverts power and he flips it on its head. Any, anything that we would go, well, that's the biggest and the best and the greatest, not that God can't use those things, but often he loves to flip things on their head, especially when it comes to power, so we can understand that his power is made perfect in weakness. And that he doesn't need the best that humans can do. He doesn't need the most influential. He doesn't need the most interesting. He doesn't need political, social, financial power. He can make things happen just because he's God. And he will use the most humble locations and humble places to do extraordinary things. So this is helpful for us to understand power. And then there's the, the Magi come to Jerusalem, which is this influential place in Israel, right? In, in Judea. And they go there because they figure, well, a king's been born. Let's check this out first. Nope, there's no king here. He's in Bethlehem. Okay, we got to go to this little village from here called Bethlehem. Maybe 300 people lived in Bethlehem at the time. Very small. And there they meet this little peasant boy. Nothing's consequential, nothing significant or unusual about him. And they shower him with lavish gifts. They shower him with lavish gifts. They, they see this is the, the true king. This is, if we could use ultimate power. 
Doesn't look like it, but we're going to lavish gifts upon this little boy. Talk about a windfall for a family who had nothing. Had nothing. They were the poorest of the poor. No hope of uh, social mobility, of, of upward mobility, moving up in, in the world. That didn't happen in this world. But suddenly, they've been given great wealth. The Magi use their power, they use their wealth, they use their influence to raise up someone. Herod uses his power to tear down someone. You see the difference? And a lot of times we approach uh, opposition through a human lens of power. We approach, are you guys tracking with me? Are you okay? Okay. We approach, we approach uh, opposition to our faith through human lenses of power. And if they say, well, here's the way things are going to be now, and here are the laws we're going to write in the land, and, and here is what's really truth, we want to get our St. Nicholas on. And we want to get up over there and slap them across the face. Or we're, we're a little more sophisticated about it. We're just going to destroy them with our reason and our logic. And, and we're going to prove to them every way that they are, are wrong and not seeing this correctly. Now, when, when power is gained through force, though, if you, if you do this to gain power, you have to keep power through force, which is what Herod did. He gained power through treachery. You know, he was called the butcher of Bethlehem because of this. He, he killed three of his own sons because he thought they were a threat to his throne. When, when you have power and you gain power through violence, through treachery, through uh, force, anything like that, you have to keep your power that way. But when power is gained through love, you keep power through love. Martin Luther King Jr. said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. Our reaction when someone opposes us often is to meet fire with fire, power with power. But that's not the way that Jesus calls us to meet opposition to our faith, is it? We're in a moment right now in history, the past couple of years in particular, where uh, people are struggling for power politically and struggling for power ideologically and struggling for power economically and culturally and socially and legally and theologically and in so many other ways. Struggling for power over who can teach what in schools. Struggling for power over what is going to happen in, in towns and cities and businesses and all sorts of things. And we get caught up in power struggles so easily, don't we? Do you, do you find yourself just getting caught up in the frenzy of whatever power struggle that is, is most connected to you? You're like, well, I'll tell them this. I'll show them this. And they need to see this. And I need to prove them wrong about this. And I'm not talking about being a doormat here, friends. I'm not talking about letting people just walk over you and do whatever they want. But we need to understand how we very, sin very easily leads us into a, a human power dynamic where we're always fighting and trying to fight fire with fire. And we're trying to use violence to gain power instead of using power through love. Jesus said this, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Think about that for a second. 
Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. It does not say blessed are those who are going to retake, retake institutions and, and social, uh, cultural uh, ideologies, for they will inherit the whole earth. No, it says blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. True power is revealed in humility. It doesn't matter if you have the right theology or the right belief. If you do not handle opposition the way Jesus handles opposition, you cease to be faithful to Jesus in that moment. What if the enemy was smart enough? He's not really that smart, but he's got a little craftiness to him, so we need to be aware. What if the enemy was sneaky enough to go, I'm just going to start throwing all these crazy oppositions and power struggles at them, and I'm going to see if the Christian can remain faithful to love? Because it doesn't matter which side you get on of an argument. If you cease to love, you have stopped being faithful. You've stopped being faithful. You're like, I'm going to fight for my faith. But the second you step out of love, you've already lost the fight for your faith. Many of the things the church is getting caught up with in this day and age are about exerting worldly power, not about keeping faithful to Jesus. The book of Revelation, uh, Jesus has messages to seven churches in Asia Minor, what modern-day Turkey. None of the, they all end with something like, to those who are faithful, I'll give them a new name. To those who are faithful, I'll give them a crown. It doesn't say to those who are faithful to reinstate whatever their beliefs are in the culture, I will give them this reward. No, it just says for you or for the church or for the community, remain faithful to what I have called you to. That's the call. There's, and this is not saying that we, we do not speak or, or, or bring reason or logic to, to situations that need to be addressed. I'm not denouncing any of that. But I think we, we've rushed to that so much that we've lost the battle already. Pastor Rich Velotis puts it this way. He says, we get really concerned with keeping Christ in Christmas, but not too concerned with keeping Christ in the Christian. Are you more concerned with opposing power with power? Fire with fire, hate with hate, as Martin Luther King put it? How have you misused power? Time, your money, social media, other media outlets, your leadership, business, schools, your family, any place of influence you have that is a place where you have power. How are you using that power? How are you using that power? Is it Jesus-shaped power? Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Or is it human power like Herod wielded? Violence, manipulation, coercion, tyranny. How are you going to use power? So first, if we're going to be faithful in the midst of opposition, we need to understand opposition, and especially we need to understand power. Are you with me? Second, and these last two will be much shorter, I promise you. We need to understand that God is protecting and providing. God is protecting and providing. I love verse 12 and verse 13 in this story. Verse 12, it says, when it was time to leave the Magi, they returned to their own country, listen to this, by another route. Because why? 
God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. God's protection on them. Hey, you've been faithful to me so far. Trust me, don't go back that way. Go this way. Verse 13, it says, After the Magi were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. God protects and provides everything Mary, Joseph, and Jesus need. How did he provide everything they needed? It's often speculated by scholars that the money and the wealth that the Magi gave to them as gifts was used to fund their their escape to Egypt. God provides everything you need when you are facing opposition. God is protecting you when you are facing opposition. God's giving you everything you need to stand firm and be faithful. Remember our redefinition of faithfulness here that we just talked about. God has given you everything you need to be faithful in the midst of any opposition you are facing. What's the opposition you're facing right now? Is it personal? Is it in your family? Is it in your workplace? Is it in your your town? Is it in your neighborhood? Where is it God is protecting you in the face of that opposition and he's provided everything you need to be faithful in the midst of that opposition. Just think about the situations you're all facing right now. What if that was 100% true? That God is protecting you the whole way through. What if it was 100% true that he has provided everything you need to be faithful to him in the midst of that opposition? What if that was true? Is there anything you would do differently? I know I find when I'm not totally trusting that God's got my back and he's protecting me, I'll like get a little bit weak in the moment. Or, or, or I'll back down a little bit. God has provided everything that you need. You need to understand this today. I, I think some of us have, have been going so long in self-protection mode We've kept people at arm's length. We've stayed out of situations we know that God's called us into because there's just too much opposition. God's saying, no, 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 I am protecting you. Maybe some of you are gonna get words and dreams or someone's just gonna encourage you in a way and it's gonna just be a word from God just like Joseph got in a dream or just like the Magi got in a dream saying, here's what you do. Here's what's coming. Here's how you need to face it. Here's the encouragement you need. What if God was serious about protecting and providing for you? What would change in your life? Think about that. Maybe you want to make a note right now. It's a good question to ask yourself. So we need to understand that God is protecting and providing. Third, you need to understand who gets the last word when opposition comes. Verse 19, when Herod died, could stop right there. When Herod died, look at that, there's an end to the opposition. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. 
Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. Herod died. The season of opposition had ended. God's work was still going to go forward. A lot of us, I think, get really short-sighted when it comes to opposition. Think about, like, how can I protect myself right now so I can get out of this moment? Instead of thinking about what's happening down the road. Who's ultimately going to come out on top? Who gets the last word in this opposition here? We wonder sometimes if we are going to be able to be faithful. We talked last week about enduring faith. Part of something that happens sometimes with enduring faith is we've got to be able to stay the course long enough to trust that God's going to get the final word. That God's going to get the final word. It might feel like the last chapter of the story has been written. But there's another part. Or there's another book coming. Or there's a sequel. Pick your metaphor. But if we, if we play the short game and I'm like, I just got to do what I need to to survive this moment. We're going to miss the truth that every opposition that comes against God and God's people ends. It all ends. It all ends. I could sit here and tell you story after story. I'm a history nerd. Some of you guys know that. So we could go through history and see the list of empires and governments and world leaders and regimes and and just local neighbors and anyone else who's been in opposition to the ways of God. And we could go down the list and see how every single one of them has fallen away and God is still standing. And because you are in God, you are still standing. I'm gonna share a story. I'm gonna read this story. I read this story. It was so powerful to me. We can't be thinking about the, the short term when it comes to who gets the last word and we have to think about what God's doing long. It's a story of uh, Micah and, and Dorcas Magaji. And they were walking through their Nigerian village in the morning of December 18th, 2014. And they were confronted with a choice, whether they were going to have a short-term self-protection or if they were going to see and believe who really got the final word. They were surrounded by a group of men, Micah and Dorcas were, and they were told to deny Christ and they could live. And if they did not and remained faithful, they would face death. We were born into a Christian family, Michael told them. We are still Christians today. There is no way we are going to turn from our past. The men then threatened to cut off Micah's arm and kill him if he didn't renounce his faith. Only God can take life, he responded. What kind of faith is that? This guy's crazy. Only God can take life. Can you imagine saying that? He responded. He says, it is from God, so you cannot take my life. The Muslims then tried to intimidate Dorcas, but she also remained faithful. I'm married to a Christian, she said. There's no way I would go back. Whenever, wherever my husband goes, this is where I'll go. I'm not changing from this faith to any other. Dorcas's response infuriated the men. They shot her to death and then hacked at both of Micah's forearms with a machete before leaving him for dead. The story of the attack got 
to the Christian elders in the church there. And so they sent people to rescue Micah, he explained. He said, it is the power of God that has kept me up to this point. We sit there laying, bleeding out. Before the attackers left Micah for dead, they stole his cell phone. A lot of Islamic extremists routinely take their victim's phone so they can identify other Christian contacts. And it also allows them to break the news of the killing to loved ones who, called the, who call the phone, further terrorizing the Christian community. But after being taken to the hospital, Micah borrowed his brother's cell phone to call his attackers on his own phone. And I told them, he said, you people thought you have killed me, but my God has saved me. Surprisingly, the attacker, get this, this is crazy, the attacker responded by apologizing. The attacker apologized and even told Micah that he would like to ask his forgiveness in person once his wounds had healed. I'm a Christian, he told them. I don't bear grudges. I don't keep records of wrong. I have already forgiven you, he said. Even after the men killed his wife and attempted to dismember him, Micah said he was willing to meet them in person. While, he, uh, while he's unsure if it is a trap, he is certain God is in control. God will show a way, he said. They may cancel if, I, if they have the courage to come and meet me. I don't have a problem. I will meet with them. God is involved in this. I will meet with them and they will not attack me. Micah and Dorcas understood who gets the last word when it comes to opposition to their faith. Now you might be thinking, well, it didn't work out because Dorcas died. My friends, we believe in a resurrection. We believe in a resurrection. We believe that only one life, there's so much more going on here. Someone came and apologized and forgiveness was extended. Who has power in that situation? The one who attacked violently or the one who forgives? No matter what he faced, his wife dead and he still has the power to forgive. They knew that they could take the easy way out. They could just simply deny Jesus and go about their day safely and repent later and say, God, we didn't mean it. We just needed to get out of that situation. But they saw a bigger picture. They understood who gets the last word. Do you see the bigger picture? Do you see who gets the last word? You're like, oh, that's really intense. That's so intense. Why are you telling us this story? It might be extreme for your day, this day and age. It might be extreme for the context that you and I live in. But in some ways, I think it's, it's even more important when it's harder to see the opposition. Will you see the big picture? Can you have faith to see that God is up to something where he will get the last word, that the opposition coming against you is not going to last? Can you see how important it is to remain faithful? You see how this man remained faithful to Jesus. His faithfulness wasn't just in the moment of saying, no, 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 I'm not gonna denounce Jesus. His faithfulness was that he turned around and forgave them. That was his faithfulness to Jesus. He did not get bitter. He did not blame anyone. He didn't turn around and, and seek revenge or violence. 
he forgave because he saw who gets the last word. We've talked about this a lot, but in a society and in a culture that's so instant gratification-based, it is so hard sometimes to look to the future, to say, I know who has this in the end. But I think God's calling us to have bigger vision, bigger vision that can withstand any opposition. When we realize that, we will be faithful no matter what. There's a little more to that story about St. Nicholas, actually. You want to hear the end of it? So the bishop's council, they would not tolerate what he did. They, I told you they defrocked him. They took his, his bishop vestiges. They locked him away. He didn't ha- get to be in there. They were going to let the heretic finish speaking, and then, and then they were going to figure things out later. They were going to figure out what they were going to do with Nicholas. So Nicholas is there in chains where they kept him in this room until the council was finished. He'd been stripped of his role as a bishop and a leader in the church. And he said, the story goes that he realized his mistake and he repented and he just began crying out to God for forgiveness. I see what I've done. He was not walking in the way of Jesus. And here's how the story goes. The story goes that Jesus showed up in this, this room, in this cell. And he put new bishop garments on him. And when they came afterwards to, to get Nicholas, they saw him sitting, and they also gave him a, a, a Bible to read, and he was studying the Gospels, studying the words of Jesus. And, and so he's sitting there. When they come back in to get him, his chains had broken off and fallen off him. He's wearing new bishop garments, and he's studying the scriptures. In the end, long term, the heresy was snuffed out. It was proven to be completely a lie, not in line with the scriptures at all. Friends, when your faith is opposed, understand how power and opposition works. Understand that there's a way to do, as Jesus said, to be humble because those people inherit the earth in a different way than Nicholas did. You see how he was restored. Understand that God's the one that provides, just like he was provided his garments again. His chains were were broken off. He was protected. God is protecting you and providing for you in the face of opposition. And see who got the last word. It wasn't even Nicholas that got the last word. It was God himself that got the last word. When you face opposition, understand those things. Understand how you use the power you have. Understand how you're being provided for and protected. And understand who's got the last word. Let's stand and pray. This is one of those messages that is frustrating for, for some of us, myself included, because we're very like get things done, take charge, type A people, and we're just going to tell them like it is. And this is really a challenge to us following Jesus. 
because he's asking us to do things in a new way. So I just want to pray blessing for us before we close in worship. I want to pray uh, that, that the Holy Spirit would empower you to live this out differently. Holy Spirit, will you just help us? Loving enemies is hard. Forgiving those who have persecuted us is hard. Who have stood opposed to us is hard. Those who've nitpicked and condemned us and complained and criticized us. Showing love to them, Jesus, is so stinking hard. And, and we just recognize right now that there is nothing in our, in our body, there is nothing in our will, there's nothing in who we are. We have zero ability to love the way that you love. We have zero ability to be humble. We just acknowledge that, that we, we have no capacity in and of ourselves to do this. But Jesus, we recognize you have provided the Holy Spirit to change our lives. You provided the Holy Spirit to make us new. To lead us in forgiveness, to lead us in love, to lead us in humility when we stand opposed. To close our mouths when we really want to get that dig in. And Lord, I even just pray for those of us who love to get that last word in. I just pray that the, in those moments where we close our mouths, that you would use those moments uh, to bless us and transform us. Use those moments to stir your kingdom even deeper in us. Thank you for all the work you're doing in us, Lord, in this community, in this church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we worship together? It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.